Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, this is Maz. So, before we get to my chat with Brigadier Mark Askov, I want to share some good news of a personal nature. Last Saturday, July the 2nd, Essen and I welcomed our baby boy, Daryang, into the world. Both mum and bub are doing extremely well, and our two-and-a-bit-year-old girl, Lara, is definitely enjoying her new role as a big sister. Needless to say, we're uh, enjoying the sleepless nights at the moment, uh, but I'm led to believe that it's all uh, worth it, apparently. One other thing I wanted to say before we get to my chat with Mark is to apologise in advance. Uh, as you'll hear, we had a few connectivity issues, so at times the sound distorts a little. We also had a few instances of some significant background noise that I couldn't quite edit out sufficiently well. Towards the end of the episode, I also had to re-record a question to make it audible and clear, so you'll hear a slight variation in my voice. Anyway, my sincere apologies for this, and I hope that these minor imperfections won't be too distracting from what was otherwise a very fruitful and insightful conversation with a currently serving senior leader in the Australian Defence Force. I'm led to believe that this is quite a rare occurrence, especially given Mark's current role as the Director General of Intelligence at the Headquarters Joint Operations Command. Okay, let's get to the episode. My guest today is Brigadier Mark Askoff, who is the current Director General of Intelligence at the Headquarters Joint Operations Command of the Australian Defence Force. Throughout his career, Brigadier Askoff has commanded troops at all ranks from Lieutenant to Brigadier, including Platoon and Company Command in the 1st Intelligence Battalion, Battalion Command of the Royal Military College Duntroon, and most recently, he was also Commander 6th Brigade. Brigadier Askoff's operational service includes border protection operations, two deployments to East Timor, and two tours in Afghanistan. For his command of the Kabul Garrison Command Advisor Team during his second tour in Afghanistan in 2017, he was awarded a Distinguished Service Medal in the 2019 Queen's Birthday Honours List. Brigadier Askoff is a distinguished graduate of the United Kingdom's Joint Services Command and Staff College, where he was recognised as the overall best student, to date the only international representative to achieve this honour. He also holds an honours degree in history from the University of New South Wales, a Master's of International Relations from Deakin University, and a Master's of Defence Studies from King's College London. Brigadier Askoff joins me today to talk about all things intelligence and how he sees the field evolve into the future. Brigadier Askoff, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Hey, thanks, Maz. Thanks for uh, the invitation to join you today and um, feel very fortunate and a little bit overawed with the um, company that I'm now joining. Um, I certainly uh, have been highly impressed by the, the lineup of, of speakers and I will do my best to, to contribute to the discussion, but I, 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 I disclaimer up front that I'm not sure that I, I put myself in the same pantheon of, of speakers that you've had um, over the last uh, year and a half or so. It's been very impressive to see what, what you've achieved. 
Thank you so much for saying that. And uh, and I'm sure this will be an insightful conversation. It's certainly been one that I've been uh, looking forward to, uh, especially given your current job. But before, before we get to, I guess, the your current role and what that means, you joined the Army nearly, what, 30 years ago now? Uh, maybe we can start with what drove that decision to join, uh, you know, well, now, I guess, what, nearly three decades ago? Yeah, sure. Uh, unlike possibly some of your other speakers and other professional military um, officers that have been involved in in the Voices of War, I didn't join with um, any sort of strong aspirations of being in the military, to be honest. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I left school. I'd uh, gotten into a couple of different uni courses in, in my home state of Queensland at, at the two major universities there. And I think I'd also been offered a place at a couple of other universities interstate, including um, at the University of New South Wales on, at the Australian Defence Force Academy campus. And mm. the ADFA one was the one that was offering a, a, a salary that came with the study. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe that'll be a good start. I can put some money aside, get some get some credit points up, and then, yeah, move back home and, and, uh, and go from there. And uh, through a combination of meeting some incredibly great people who have become lifelong friends in that first year, I sort of stayed a second year. And, and <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest, my... my uh, laser fair attitude towards personal administration shone through and I failed to do the paperwork to get myself out of the army before a return of service obligation um, <laughs> kicked, kicked in. in at the end of the second year of, of study and 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 then and then I was then I was uh, uh you know had the up to Cape York as part of the 51st Battalion Final Queensland Regiment and, and spent two years working and living on the Cape um, in what is probably one of the last parts of Australian wilderness uh, and, and really learnt a lot about, about myself as, as a young man and also learnt a lot about our First Nations and their culture. Mm. And I also learnt a lot, which I didn't know I was learning at the time, about all the things that have come to really matter over the last 20 years in military operations in terms of information warfare, intelligence collection and building partnerships and collaborating across whole of government and with community and industry. They are all things that I got to experience in my first two years of service. And I didn't know all those amazing things that I was gonna that I was experiencing were gonna have lifelong impacts on me. But they certainly did. And and from there I just sort of kept getting into interesting roles and and, and here I am twenty eight years later still working out what I'm gonna do when I grow up. <laughs> And while you were at uh, 51, did I hear you correctly? You saying you were Cape York, so you were uh, Bravo Company in Weeper. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, Bravo uh, Company. Um, yeah, the dogs of war. Well, I followed in your footsteps. Uh, I was actually, uh, I did my Reggie, uh, Reggie posting uh, following RMC uh, up in uh, Bravo Company. And uh, I can certainly echo um, everything you've just said about that, um, about that posting and the insights it affords. It's an absolutely incredible, and I feel so fortunate to have had the chance to experience uh, Cape York uh, to its fullest and, and getting to know the Indigenous culture um, and, and build cross-cultural uh, relations. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, certainly, and, and it's good to know. It's no surprise, Maz, I don't think that it's why, uh, you know, we obviously get on as our, our formative uh, experience of living on Cape York, but... Yeah, it, it was an amazing first first step into my military career. And but again, you know, to answer your question, perhaps more succinctly than I did, was I, I never had aspirations or a vision that I would be in the military for now almost 
30 years. But the reason why I'm still serving is because each and every time, you know, a posting cycle comes around, the, the military offer and the opportunity is such that it intrigues me, it engages me, and it's something that I think I can add value to. Um, and, I, th you know, the opportunity to work with just the, the great people that are in the ADF is a is a real value proposition, and and so as a result, I've I've kept doing it. And but as I said before, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm now probably closer to the, my time end of my time in the military, and and I'm still yet to work out what I'm going to do when I grow up. So that's a that's something on my to do list um, that's uh, that needs to be fulfilled. But uh, until until that time, I'm I'm certainly you know really enjoying. What I do, and I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged to have assumed the role of, of Director General Intelligence here at our headquarters, Joint Operations Command, um, earlier this year. It's a, a fantastic role, and at a time of obviously geostrategic tensions and and competition, and that that means that the ADF and in the military line of national power can you know continues to have a real relevance um, mm. in helping support our government in its national security and, and promoting its interests and trying to shape the region to support our, our that national security. Um, so yeah, amazing time to be here and certainly been on a, a steep learning curve over the last few weeks. Yeah, and uh, certainly the world hasn't stopped uh, or slowed down to, uh, <laughs> to let you settle in. Uh, it's certainly been a, a turbulent uh, last month at least. Uh, but maybe for the uninitiated uh, in our audience, what does the, the Director General Intelligence at the Headquarters Joint Operations Command do? What is the, what is the, what is the job? Look, the, the job is to work and lead a, a team of um, intelligence military professionals and support the Chief of Joint Operations, a, a three-star general who is responsible to the Chief of Defence Force for all ADF, Australian Defence Force, operational activities and actions in domestically, regionally and globally. Um, and what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What we, what we seek to do is provide, characterise the threats and the operating environments for the, the chief and the principal staff and for our deployed force elements. And our purpose is to try and reduce ambiguity, support decision-making for our senior leaders, primarily the Chief of Joint Operations, but also the commanders of the Joint Task Force that are deployed around the region and the globe, and to help the headquarters staff identify opportunities and to enable full-spectrum operations that the ADF is authorised to conduct um, today and needs to prepare to conduct possibly for the future. Mm. So, so uh, not a busy job at all, then. <laughs> oh, look, it's it's the 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 whole headquarters is a works to a full and and challenging battle rhythm, but it's a sign of the times. And the, the beauty is, Maz, as you know, um, as the 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 leader of my branch, um, my biggest uh, responsibility is to empower the rest of my team and to enable them to deliver that on that purpose. And, and my job is to try and help them prioritise because there's often more tasks than there is you know, capacity. Mm. So how do I help them prioritise what, what we need to do? 
how to communicate to the Chief of Joint Operations and to the other senior staff on the headquarters what we anticipate as being um, future events and how we should array and use our resources to best effect um, in response to those um, future uh, events and activities. So, you know, it's it's leveraging the, the the expertise across all the team and and working. You know, and and the key point as well, Maz, is it's we we don't try and do it all on our own. We've got to collaborate and coordinate across uh, with the services. Um, you know, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, with our um, civilian defence civilian counterparts across the strategic policy and international policy groups and divisions and across the rest of the defence intelligence enterprise and the wider national intelligence enterprise. So it's a, a large coordinating and collaborating role for us to deliver those those effects and, and to achieve our purpose. It's not done unilaterally. It, it truly is a team game. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And that's actually a neat pivot uh, into my next question. Uh, and again, I, I just don't want to assume you know too much from my audience, uh, most of whom will probably be surprised that uh, that a senior intelligence officer uh, of the Australian uh, Defence Force will even willing to uh, to come on, uh, but maybe we can start with what is the role and purpose of intelligence? And I'm talking intelligence writ large. Uh, how does it support operations? Uh, how, how how do you achieve and you and your team achieve uh, uh, what your purpose is? So I think if you were to sum it up in one singular role, it's to support decision making. But I think it's there's a number of sub elements to that um, ultimately and as a you know some of those are the what I articulated as the purpose for our branch but I think it those those purposes are in many cases universal across the intelligence enterprise which is to characterize for decision makers and for uh, deployed forces or you know to the customer whoever that customer may be um, the threats, and the nature of the operating environment in which um, they find themselves or we are likely to um, become involved in. It's the purpose is to help decision makers through reducing ambiguity of, of, uh, of that in that operating environment and in relation to those potential threats. And it's to identify opportunities. Now, how do we do that? Um, like all good militaries and you know, other sort of government agencies, There's we, we've tried to break that down into a cycle and um, many of your listeners may have heard of and, and been involved directly in being parts of the intelligence cycle, which is, mm. you know, the direction, the collection, the processing and the dissemination. And, and really at the headquarters joint operations command, we enable direction through advising and then acting on the direction from the chief of joint operations. We directly are involved in the coordination and the authorization of collection. And we support and are part of the defense intelligence and national intelligence enterprise in the processing of the information that is collected to, to translate that into intelligence. And then we have a responsibility to disseminate that and share it with our customers, but also share it with our partners. So as we can build shared awareness and shared understanding across um, you know, the whole of government for, for the Australian sense, but mm -hmm. but equally with our allies, partners and friends. Mm. And I guess there are a number of intelligence disciplines uh, that will certainly support, well, mainly the collection, I guess. And, and you know, we, 
most of my audience will know of uh, human intelligence, signals intelligence, uh, electronic intelligence, and so on and so forth. But one of the ones that's, uh, I guess, gathering more and more steam, well, certainly in, in the wider world, is open source intelligence. Uh, and, and I guess one of the points here is uh, I'll refer to what uh, Amy Ziegard, who I listened to recently, uh, she was on Michael Morell's uh, podcast, Intelligence Matters. She refers to it as the five mores. Uh, when talking about open source. So more threats, more speed, more data, more customers, and more competitors. In other words, you were saying that, you know, there's just so much data coming down range uh, and so many threats are emerging, including down to backyard hackers uh, or garage hackers. Given this reality in the multi-domain battle space, how, how do we prepare, I guess, the intelligence analysts of the future against information overload, and then, of course, the ever-important cognitive bias. Yeah. Um, it's the $64 million question, isn't it? How do we <laughs> yeah. produce yeah. The, the, the future um, intelligence professional? I think um, to, to talk to the first point of your question and, and observation, Maz, about the prevalence of data and the increasing prominence of, of open source intelligence, um, you know, there's a whole range in that of, of collection capabilities um, which represent the how do we how do we get after the, the collection and how do we start to get the information we need to then be able to do analysis and processing to, to turn that that data into information and then ultimately into intelligence and you, you talked on and touched on a number of the traditional um, collection methods of, of human intelligence of signals intelligence, which encompasses both communications and electronic intelligence disciplines or subdisciplines. Um, and, you know, there's geospatial intelligence and, and image, which, which has a subset of, you know, under it of imagery intelligence. And then this, this new idea of open source intelligence, which in some cases actually draws from publicly available information that mm. sits under those those other traditional collection methods, you know, mm. imagery intelligence. There's a large amount of publicly available, you know, imagery. Mm. Um, so what was part in the past something that only governments could collect um, is now a commercial enterprise in mm. many cases. And so how do we make sure we are aware of those 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 sources of information, and then how do we, you know, how can we incorporate them into our our collection plans and then incorporate them and use them as part of our analysis and processing? And the the use of tools, you know, software tools and applications is critical as we think about how to deal with the volume of data. And and there's the volume of public data that is exponentially growing on a you know day by day basis. Um, I think, you know, I've read somewhere or heard a, a speaker on a podcast talk about the fact that, you know, each each week or month, the world now generates uh, enough data, you know, or an equal amount of data to that that was captured in the first, you know, um, or the last 2,000 years of mm, human mm, endeavour mm. is now being generated, you know, you know weeks, weeks yeah. slash months as opposed to, you yeah. know, millennia. Mm. Um, so that that's publicly available, and then there's the private data collection that you know throughout through militaries and governments and states, um, private uh, means of collection. But equally, that 
that amount of data has also exponentially increased. Mm. So um, what, what, to talk to the skills and the, the capabilities of our, of our current and our future workforce um, has to talk about data literacy mm. and, the, and, and being um, skilled and knowledgeable in the data sciences, be that data analytics, data languages, so coding, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. data visualization are all you know disciplines and skills that we need to um, build into our current workforce, but they are going to be, I think, um, essential uh, qualifications or essential skills of, of our future workforce. Mm. So I'd certainly say that data literacy is one area that has uh, increasing prominence and, and relevance. I think the the other thing that we need to build into our workforce, p- part of which is already there, certainly in the military and intelligence workforce, is the idea of teaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked about it before with regards to the J2 branch. We we can't do what we do unilaterally. We need to work across services groups. We need to build teams, task organised teams. We also need to build teams of teams, you know, um, working across whole of government departments, but, but also working with our allied and international partners and friends and also building teams with perhaps what would be considered today or what was, would have been considered in the past, non-traditional partners such as academics and think tanks and industry. And, and whilst we don't, you know, in some cases we badge them as non-traditional partners, actually, if you go back and look at the way in which we went about trying to characterise the threat and the operating environments of uh, during the Second World War, then you'll find that the militaries worked closely with academics, mm. think tanks of the day, you know, industry of the day. So this idea of teaming is not, I don't think, new to the intelligence professional. Um, an area that perhaps is new in the teaming for the future is machine human teaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is an area that we, we need to explore as we look at the, the, the role that maps data will play in the intelligence process and making sense of that data, then I think human machine teaming will be a, a, an important component mm. of the future. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's some there's some initial areas that I think about. The things that are enduring though in in the future intelligence workforce are the our people and will will remain still central mm. to all parts of the intelligence cycle. Um, perhaps, you know, we will be able to use technology and systems to improve dissemination. We obviously have a, a strong use of technology already in collection, but the role of the human in both the direction of and in collection and mm. in analysis will remain prominent. And that means our people need to be, I think, professionally curious. They need to be committed to a continuous learning and learning and thinking about thinking. Mm -hmm. So how to critically analyze problem frame and be committed to constantly learning um, and upskilling to build their skills and knowledge. Mm. I think our people uh, and our future workforce absolutely have to be um, excellent communicators. Mm. And that's, that you know, as you'd know, Maz, that's something that we we seek from our workforce today, but I think it remains 
just as important, if not perhaps even more important into the future. And by communicated, communicator, I mean excellent listening skills mm. along with the traditional verbal communication and um, written communication mm. um, are, are enduring skills and knowledge that we must have. And we must be sceptical. We must remain sceptical and constantly question and look to validate the the data that we are analysing. So, sorry, that's just a wonderful point that you made there because I, I, I just want to jump in on that and, and double-click on it because I think that strikes me as a particularly important one to be critical uh, because that's especially in the ever-increasing amount of data coming in, more sensors coming in, inevitably, and social science. So these are the hard sciences, the data, but social science will tell us that you know, when there's too much information, we take shortcuts, our heuristics will take over, and of course, our bias, mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, what uh, one of the principal challenges of intelligence and intelligence analysis is, uh, is how do we actually, you know, when you're talking about, you know, characterizing threats and reducing ambiguity, how do we actually do that uh, whilst making sure that we're really, you know, applying the mirror on ourselves? Uh, and making sure that our preconceived ideas and notions uh, are not completely skewing the information that we see. And we've seen this happen time and time and again. And, and I guess the 9-11 Commission uh, found that the most important failure was one of imagination. It wasn't one of, uh, you know, not having the information there. It was just not being, you know, it was just thinking in a single-track mind. I wonder if you have anything uh, more to say to that. Yeah, look, you know, it History shows us that it continues to be our, uh, you know, a weak spot or a blind spot is our, the impact of our biases on the way in which we approach our, our analysis. And, and, you know, the same can be said for, for all human endeavour mm. is that we're victims of our own biases in, in informing our decision making. So you're right, we've got to build in um, assurance mechanisms. And I think in the collection phase, we build... Um, a degree of you know validation and assurance through through layering of collection, so as to not rely upon a single source of collection mm -hmm. to be the to provide the the sole insight and the sole data point. You want multiple data points um, of the same issue and the same topic to try and build in that redundancy and resilience and um, and way of validation. I think in our analysis, you, you constantly have to. Um, have a con contest of ideas and discussions. So, mm. you know, the use of things like structured analytical techniques to mm. provide a, a discipline and a framework around how to how to think about the information you have. Um, but equally, you know, things like structured analytical techniques also force you to force the group through facilitation to step outside and a step away from their biases because they're able to be um, called out or identified through a facilitated activity. Um, ideas and, and, and approaches such as red teaming mm -hmm. where people deliberately, you know, apply the, the De Bono red hat and contest and challenge the, the, the group and the consensus. So using those those discipline frameworks can help build contestation and they can also help, um, I think, open up imagination mm -hmm. for alternative futures. And that's something that I think is, um, you know, something that we should continue to 
value is is the use of structured techniques to help people imagine different outcomes and different futures perhaps that aren't readily um, able to be seen based on the data that they're looking at you know on a daily basis mm-hmm. and I guess the follow-on question from that is how, how to what extent are you comfortable that we're achieving that institutionally as an organization that we're that we're inculcating that sense of curiosity and uh, you know challenging the the, the dominant narratives uh, whether through red teaming or purely through being critical uh, how comfortable are you that we're, that we're hitting the mark look I think um, we absolutely value that that approach to our work but it's like um, in some cases it's you know think about it through an like an op that it's just happening you've got to check and you've mm. got to build an a, you know a monitoring and an, a, an a assurance model into the way you do business to to ensure that those things are happening and not being um, parked or put mm. aside in the interests of time tempo or or um, you know relative priorities so th- that's it's really important that you you know through leadership you know leaders mm. at all levels having the courage and the discipline to um, apply those 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 governance measures or con- points of contestation mm. um, and not sort of go oh look it'd be easier if we just we just got to get this done so don't worry about running it through a red team or don't worry about putting using a structured analytical technique let's just quickly um, spitball what we think and you know that'll become our most likely co- course of action it's mm. so you know we've got to constantly <laughs> check and and you know we've got to we've got to apply leadership and empower our leaders to um, feel like they have the authority to and the courage you know they've got the permission to have that moral courage to um to apply you know processes that sometimes may actually cause us to slow down and have to you know delay outcomes or present ideas or positions that may not be aligned to the the group think or the, the consensus of thinking mm, mm. so so on that moral courage piece where is that instilled and how is it done and and, and i ask this because of course we ourselves as, a, as an organization and institution uh, have faced some of our own challenges uh, of course with uh, moral courage and people um getting how shall i put it sucked in by the moment um and and i guess uh, uh, at the risk of being ostracized from a group didn't necessarily speak up uh, so so how do we actually you know build that moral courage especially because oftentimes our intelligence personnel are rather young uh, not necessarily have lived a full life of uh, world exp- you know world experience uh, and it is actually quite challenging to speak up when the group think uh, is uh, you know heading one way it's a lot easier to go with the dominant narrative. Yeah, you're right, Maz, and um, it is a, a persistent um, challenge that we must constantly consider and 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 look to put in place the right resources and support mechanisms to ensure that you know all our teams are best prepared and and appropriately supported to absolutely fulfil their role honestly. And with the level of moral courage, so I think it starts at you know day one of of joining, in this case the the military profession. Day one, inculcating that and and explaining that they have the power and the authority to um, call out and speak up 
when they see unacceptable behaviour or questionable practices or unprofessional practices. So that that starts day one, mm. you know, that you can't afford to be a bystander in an organisation that is based on the strength of the, the team. Mm. So, and, and that um, individual actions can, you know, reduce the effectiveness of the team. So you've got to call out when people are, you know, misleading, misdirecting or, you know, obviously uh, mistreating other members of the team. So um, that, that that needs to be from the outset. It needs to be demonstrated to them that it works. So mm. they've got to be able to see, you know, it's that see it, be it type model. So mm. there's got to be active um, live application of it demonstrated to them. And and throughout the course of your career, you need to keep that, that message being empowered and, and keep calling out and highlighting when it is being delivered so mm. that it's not mm. just, you know, when, when the, the positive and the constructive are occurring, we actually call that out and highlight it and say, see, this is what happens when you, when you do this, the right outcome occurs. Mm. When you stand up, when you speak up, um, when you're, you know, you're not a bystander, you're an upstand, then mm. it, it achieves the desired effect with, 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 the right, with the right outcome. So, and I know that sounds, you know, it's always, it sounds easier than it, it is, mm. but. Um, but that's what it is. <laughs> it, it, that's what it is. It, yeah. it is. It's, yeah. it's not, if it was easy, um, we wouldn't, wouldn't find ourselves being challenged mm. by it on a, you know, on a regular basis. And, that, and that's from the very minor to the, the most severe. And, but yeah. I think le- leadership, in the intelligence enterprise is just as important as it is in any other enterprise. And um, intelligence professionals who have responsibilities to lead and manage and coordinate and, and take responsibility over others have to understand that they have a leadership responsibility. And, mm-hmm. and we, need to, we need to provide them the, the tools and the resources and the training and the experiences to be leaders mm. um, so we need to just as much as we need to invest in their professional intelligence skills of of an you know whatever that might be as a collector or as an analyst mm. um, we need to invest in their leadership skills and knowledge as well that you, if you want them to take responsibility for people uh, and and outcomes then we've got to invest that time because it's it's something that must be practiced it must be learnt and you must invest time in it just as much as you invest time in your other skills, your other knowledge um, mm. areas and, and, and building your attributes. Yeah. And, and I think it's, um, it's as important or, you know, in some cases, if you talked about if, if not more important for our, for, for the intelligence professional mm. because of, because of the consequences of, of some of the, the scenarios and operating environments in which they're they're providing that advice yeah yeah absolutely and i'll just uh, echo some thoughts i've recently interviewed david wedham and, and dean peter baker as well um separately and and this came up with both of those uh well military ethicists uh about the environment that we created where and, and the, the role leadership plays in it uh you know it's the the a person behavior uh, is an interplay of an individual personality with the environment that they find themselves in, uh, and you know, which is why good people end up doing bad things or can end up doing bad things if if a number of different things are in place. Uh, you know, whether that might be fatigue, whether that might be peer pressure, confused mission uh, mission set, uh, desensitization to war, uh, whatever other factors that might 
influence how that person's feeling at that point in time. Uh, when they encounter some version of chaos, uh, whatever that might be in, in, in their instance, whether it's an intelligence uh, analyst or as a special forces soldier or, or, or regular infantryman on the ground, uh, you know, all of that will shape how they behave. Uh, and ethics, unfortunately, comes into play a little bit too late uh, or to think about it, which is why the, the training piece that you, that you talk about is so important to, I guess, build as close as possible the environment that we're likely to face on the battlefield uh, in a training setting so that the first time we confront these ethical challenges is not when we're uh, out on the uh, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a, an operational deployment somewhere, but that of course means that we need to try and replicate all of those various pressures uh, that we experience. And 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 I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, or if you've seen that done well, uh, or particularly in the intelligence space, uh, you know, that uh, how we can I guess bolster that realistic training, immersive training uh, experience. Yeah, I think um, our collective training environment absolutely has to replicate as close as possible the the likely operating environments that we'll find ourselves in so so as to do exactly what you've said maz which is to um, create the situation in which people can um, see what right and potentially what not right looks like mm. and but in a safe environment where the ability to then actively learn from that through active debriefing of, hey, here's a scenario, here was either what your actions were and the consequences. Let's actively debrief that through, you know, through a, an appropriate and facilitated debriefing structure so as to provide that learning mm. opportunity. Mm. Or here's a scenario that's played out and you can tell us what you what you see here and, and give us your impressions and engage seek for them to identify obviously self-identify where there was where, where perhaps right was not um the right approach was applied and 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 that's that courage to in some cases it's creating a training environment that allows and encourages failure hmm. and then allows you to learn through that failure and and failure doesn't have to be catastrophic failure mm -hmm. it's mm. it's it's small decisions that may not have been the best decision mm. But you've got to create a, a training environment that one that allows you to make those not best decisions, but also then a, a feedback cycle where you can actively engage, discuss, analyze, and and then re-engage at some mm. point in the training system, you know, training activity, for them to to apply that that next lot of um, or new knowledge that they've had as a result of that debriefing process mm. and and mm. and self and self reflection that we've got to teach people to um, to value self reflection as well on their decision making and their actions. So I think the training environment, you know, does present opportunities like that. Can we create more of them? Absolutely. Uh, I honestly think that that's what the ADF is is committed to doing in building mm. more complex, deep, um, you know, immersive training environments is to to do exactly that, create those those challenging, both physically, morally, and, you know, emotionally challenging environments that we'll find mm. ourselves, potentially find ourselves in non-operations to do that inside of our training environments. Mm. Um, and the, the other way we need to practice it and train it is in our day-to-day -day work. We don't need to have dedicated, you know, training events as well. We can we can practice a lot of these skills and demonstrate the the, the 
appropriate values through our daily life, you know, through our daily business. Mm. Um, and we can use that as learning opportunities. We've just got to, you know, encourage our leaders, team leaders to use the day-to-day business for, for collective learning by having reflection periods, by having debriefs um, and giving them that time to do that with their teams so that they they have the ability to learn from the recent past, whatever that might be that they've been doing and, and you know, and both as individuals and as groups reflect and share their understandings of what they've learned and then apply for the next, you know, the next day or the next activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that comes back to that leadership piece. Uh, it, it's absolutely critical uh, that that becomes part of the, the a leader's, a leader's toolkit uh, is to encourage that self-reflection piece uh, without a fear of any um, reprimand, but more about uh, getting to know ourselves better. Uh, and this is actually a really neat segue into when we're talking about knowing ourselves better. Uh, Australia is an Anglophone nation where English is the official language. However, we are arguably the world's most successful migrant nation with, uh, I think, around 23% of our citizens born overseas. So in other words, we have this wealth of untapped resources within our own borders that could really help us understand the complex cultural ecosystems that exist around the world. Now, this is particularly important when it comes to understanding our immediate region of uh, Southeast Asia, but also you know, beyond and f- further afield. My question to you is, uh, are we investing sufficient resources in understanding the cultural diversity and ecosystems that exist in our region? Tough, another tough one, I know. I think we're <laughs> – yeah, yeah, no, no. And look, could we be doing more? Yes. Um, are we doing enough? Probably not yet. But are we invested in it and are we have we identified it as an area of continuous – learning and continuous improvement absolutely and i think um you know and i wouldn't want to speak on behalf of of the australian defense college for example and the commandant there but i know you've spoken recently to the former uh, commandant of this defense college general ryan but the work that he and his leadership team put in over the last few years to build the curriculum and and increase the access to things, um, to to learning opportunities about culture and languages and um, self-reflection and emotional intelligence and things that help you be a better person. Because even if you don't necessarily have the language, the specific language skill, if you understand how you present yourself to others and how you are perceived by others, then you can adapt and adapt more readily anyway to whichever you know group and cultural group you you're interacting with um so whilst it may not be the the gold plate solution of being you know a linguist you know Mm. a well a well versed linguist with deep um anthropological understanding of the the host nation in which you're partnering with working in or or um you know is an adversary to you um you've you've built the foundational skills to give yourself the best chance of having success in that in that operating environment with with the relevant culture, um, because you've we've invested in you understanding yourself and how you present and how you communicate, and that usually not always, but would usually mean that as individuals you'll be well placed to adapt um, 
to, to when you're in your interactions with others, especially those from international cultures. Um, but there's still specialist knowledge that we need to apply, and and you know I think it's been fantastic to see the breadth of access that is being made available to all ranks, you know, mm. to people at all ranks through a whole range of different mediums. So not necessarily residential courses where you have to go to Canberra or go to a certain location. You know, it's online, it's learn at your own pace. Um, so it can be done, you know, at, at various speeds depending on your availability. Um, and it's focusing on, you know, topics of cultural understanding, cultural intelligence, um, and uh, that that is, you know, a, a really good start. Like I said, can we be doing more? Probably. And um, the challenge is how do we prioritise it as well, Maz? Mm, because yeah. as you've pointed out, each each nation state, each language group uh, has has a unique and fascinating and rich culture. Mm. And then often there's subcultures to mm. that. Um, just like there is in you know in our country and in, and within organisations, so you know how do we prioritise which ones we need to to focus on um, to build depth of knowledge and and deep experience and mm. and that's that's a challenge because there's a finite resource you know right resources both in terms of people we've got and mm. time which is you know often our our greatest mm. um, and most constrained resource so. There's always going to be some that we sh we want to put more priority on, but we 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 can't for a range of different reasons, and that's that's always difficult. But I think what we need to do is have the discussion about what are we prioritising, yeah, and being clear on how we are investing in those that we have prioritised. So mm. making sure that mm. we are, if we if if it's agreed, you know, through consensus that you know a certain um, place group. Um, organization is the priority of effort then we need to make sure we've aligned the necessary resources mm. against that to make you know to align just like any main effort should mm. be where mm. it should get the preponderance of resources and effort we should do that as well with regards to building our knowledge and understanding of 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 culture and and languages mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and of course, I, I'm, I'm slightly biased when I ask that question. I mean, I, I'm one of the co-facilitators of one of those courses run by the Australian Defence College, so the Culture and Armed Conflict course, which I, which I, I, I'm a really strong supporter of that type of, I guess, institutionalised approach to getting to understand our environment. I think we've learned, and, and, and I had Dr. Mike Martin on the podcast a couple of times, who, who, who actually set, you know, helped set up. Uh, that course, but also he's he's yep. an author of an intimate war, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, um, and 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 studying uh, the cultural context of Helmand uh, and the failures of uh, you know British military uh, in Helmand, uh, and you know this is somebody who, are, who 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 I've spoken to a number of times, or, and and we've publicly discussed it. And Afghanistan is a good example of the importance of culture. You know we. We often say, you know, or at least I've often said in this podcast, is we never fought the war we thought we fought, uh, because it was it, it was it was biased through our own interpretation of what we saw on the ground. Uh, and I put myself in this as well. I, I, I was I'm guilty of this. I I, I misunderstood uh, what you know the Taliban is uh, back uh, back in the days that I was there, and uh, it's it's quite often easy to fall into the uh, kind of narrow track uh, version of uh, of definitions. Now, when we're looking in our region, that problem set becomes 
is is exponentially larger, exponentially more dense. Um, and of course, in my view, this is it should be a, a, a real priority because how we interplay with with various ecosystems uh, is of course going to shape their behavior. And if we're if we're uh, continuously uh, exposing ourselves to cultural faux pas, so to, so to call them, uh, then of course that's degrading our own uh, ability to build rapport, maintain rapport, uh, and therefore uh, build relationships or long-term, long-lasting relationships. So, I, I, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's a uh, th- this is an important step, uh, and of course, I'm very biased in my own views. <laughs> uh, so, no, no look, I, 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 to pile in, Maz, I, I agree, and and. <laughs> Whilst I highlighted the Australian Defence College's efforts, um, and and I wasn't aware that you were a co-host, so I didn't mean to, um, you know, I'm taking it as a free plug. <laughs> enforce the good work that you've been doing, um, and it, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well done. But I think what it's also highlighted is the value of of that teaming approach, you know, and mm. and teaming with other organisations. So what we've recognised is that the military and the ADF and the department isn't the font of all expertise and we need we're absolutely comfortable and confident to reach out to experts from across a wide range of of organizations um you know really positively in host nations so going to them and saying hey we want to work and partner with you to learn more about your culture and understand because your country and our country have agreed that we want to um work together and grow and build our relationship well we feel that to help to do that on our behalf we need to um, learn from you about how you think about the world and your worldview and so we've mm. we've built you know new partnerships and and encouraged experts from around the world and from the region to come and be engaged with us and they don't need to be physically engaged you know the covid pandemic has prevented a lot of that physical engagement mm. we've embraced mm. you know media multimedia technology to to engage virtually we've also um i think embraced um the opportunities presented by um the communities within australia that represent um diaspora and 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 representatives of those those regional and and global cultures and 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 ask them to be part of the mm. part of the discussion and, and part of the engagement for us to help us learn so um, and which you know I think they value they really many of them welcome the, the chance to come and you know tell us more and teach us more about their their um, traditional cultures and, and um, heritage ancestral heritage which is which is great mm. uh, absolutely uh, and perhaps uh, and, and, and noting the time as well uh, I'll start. I'll start bringing it towards the end. Uh, uh, a question that I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on is whether intelligence, as a discipline, has too much power or not enough power in the overall, I guess, military establishment. Look, I think um, the, the the easy answer is it depends. Um, I think our defence establishment over the last two decades has seen the value that dedicated professional intelligence um, of officials, people, workforce mm. can provide to, to help them make sense of the environment in which we are working and living in. I think they've seen the value of investing 
in all parts of the intelligence cycle um, of you know from direction through to dissemination but like any discipline and any part of a professional organization you can't rest on what you did yesterday you've got to constantly engage and demonstrate the the utility and the the benefits of what you offer for tomorrow and so um, and you've got to remain relevant you've got to demonstrate how you're remaining relevant um, the way in which you know you and I learnt the basics of of intel the intelligence cycle look very different to the way that um, the, the the most junior and, and newest members of our profession are learning about the application of the intelligence cycle in in 2022. Mm. And if you and I, as as people that were educated in a different type of contextual mindset, don't have the willingness to adapt and adjust, then we'll quickly make the enterprise as a whole, you know, less relevant because mm. we aren't demonstrating that agility to adapt to the changing environment. So. I don't think it's it's got too much, and I don't think it's got, uh, or, or likewise, I don't think it's got not enough. I think we've got to demonstrate that we're relevant and that we we value add where we should value add, and we demonstrate our professionalism by being committed to being, you know, commitment to excellence and professional mastery. I think. General Orm, a former commander of the First Division and mm. may have also been a commandant of the Australian Defence College, I think, in previous years, but um, General Craig Orm, you know, he had a mantra of brilliant at the basics or brilliance mm. at the basics. And I think um, that's how we may remain relevant if we are committed as professional master, you know, to maintain professional mastery in the intelligence field and not, uh, not rest on our laurels and um, remain committed to continuously learning and adapting to to meet the needs of of the, in this case, or for me, the the Australian Defence Force and the Defence um, Organisation, but for the for all of our colleagues and peers across, you know, government and across um, our allies and partners to meet the need of of their respective um, their governments as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and perhaps my last question to you today is, uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, and having lived through the strategic shifts over the past two decades, if you could change one thing uh, of the defence intelligence enterprise, if you, had, if you could have changed it, say, you know, 10 years ago, what would it be? That's a, that's a really hard question, Maz. Um, I think from a military intelligence, and, and, I, and I probably should even characterize it down into the, the you know for me the army intelligence which is you know mm. what my parents service is i think the thing that as a junior officer and i'll go back further than 10 years i'll go back when i joined you know joined the the corps some 20 odd years ago is the importance of leadership as a as equal a attribute as professional intelligence mastery that that's for for the officer core anyway within the intelligence space, but I think it it holds at every level is that um, you need to be not just the best analyst or the best collector, but you also need to understand that you will you know certainly as you gain experience and rank in the military, you have a leadership responsibility and 
valuing your development as a leader as much as you value your development as an intelligence professional um, is something that, I, and, and I'm happy to be, you know, I'm sure that's going to create some debate, but my initial observations when I reflect back on my time um, may not have been, um, had equal value applied to both. Mm. And, I, and I think we've seen the, the importance of leadership in the intelligence enterprise um, manifest itself and be so powerful in the last, you know, 15 odd years plus in our, as we became operationally um, active and valued as a part of the operational um, team. Mm, mm. And I really do hope that creates uh, some some discussions because, I, I, again, I couldn't agree more that uh, we're seeing the, the importance and power of leadership uh, not only in, in the last 20 years, but we're seeing it play out now. We're, seeing it, we're watching it live on, on, on TV play out uh, in Ukraine. Uh, as we speak. Uh, on that note, uh, Brady Mark Askov, uh, thank you very much for giving me so much of your time. Uh, I can only imagine how busy you are keeping up to date with everything that's happening in the world. Uh, so to take out uh, well, more than an hour uh, to speak with me on the podcast uh, uh, is truly appreciated. Thank you very much for your, uh, for your time. Thanks, Maz, and and thank you for having the courage and the commitment to you know deliver the Voice of War podcast, and you along with you know some of your other officer colleagues over the last five to ten years of of being prepared to make your own time or, you know, in your own time um, do these types of activities to promote professional learning, promote debate. Um, uh, you know, are really valuable and powerful, and it and it talks to one of the points you raised today about how do we prepare for the future. It's about being having a commitment to learning, um, and learning from others. And, and this is what you, your podcast does really well. And I, along with a, a range of others that are being delivered by, you know, military personnel in their spare time or ex, you know, former full time mm-hmm. serving members. So, thanks, thanks for making the effort. Um, Hopefully, I've contributed to the, the discussion. I'm very conscious that my experiences of war are far less than many of your um, previous speakers, and and I absolutely respect, you know, th- their experiences and their sacrifices in many cases, and and um, have welcomed the chance to to add to the discussion. But but I'm very conscious of of just where the limits of my experience is like in comparison to some of your other speakers. So um, really, really appreciate it and uh, and look forward to catching up again in, in person when the opportunity permits. Thanks very much. And thank you for saying those nice words. And uh, yeah, looking forward to catching up uh, in person soon. Thanks, Maz. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, Please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.